Welcome to the Men of Character Podcast with your host, Bill Maser. Welcome to the Fox Den, Bill. It's been a long time coming. I'm excited to have you here. Yeah, thank you, Jeremy. It's great, great to be on. We're, we'll do this dual cast, so I think yeah. both of our audiences will, will enjoy the conversation. They will, they will. Um, first, I'll go and just ask you to tell a little bit about your background, what got you into, as the audience probably knows you from, uh, the, the men uh, of Character Conference the, and getting together this team of individuals to speak on masculinity. Yeah, so it just, it was an outgrowth of my, of my own development and just my own interest, something that I thought should exist, some type of resource that a man who's looking to improve themselves, who wants to be a good father, who wants to be a good husband, um, who wants to be a good man in general, could come and, and learn and, and get good information. And it felt like there's no, not too many places where, where that can happen today. So and then I felt like I had found the right people through Twitter and just online in general, um, that it was just the right, the, the right idea at the right time, right. grabbed that hammer and struck it. <laughs> so it absolutely is. So what, tell us about your education, your professional life, if you don't mind anything within, uh, within reason. Sure. So I have a bachelor's and a master's from Stevens Institute of technology. So I'm a, business and technology major. I work in technology. I do uh, product management, which some people, if they're in technology, will know what that is. Others probably will think it's project management. That's probably, that doesn't matter as much. Um, and yeah, I've, I've been working so out in the job world or corporate world for about 10 years, 10, 12 years. Right. Uh, and then in the last two years or last year or so started Men of Character. Nice. Just to try to, you know, it's something that, that I'm passionate about. So mm -hmm. it's just been fun to have it be solely my idea and, and write a book, make a conference, make a watch, tweet about ideas that I believe in and, and or discussions that I want to have. So right. It's just a nice, like, uh, you know, um, open book for me to write and <laughs> And, and and now I'm I'm you know driving some discussions and I guess you could call it an influencer to some degree. So it's I, I don't take it all lightly. I think it's fun and I and I take the responsibility pretty seriously. I think it's a huge opportunity to do a lot of good. So um, absolutely, but I enjoy it too. No, I uh, I think viewers, listeners, I think Twitter, uh, everybody who comes in contact with your brand can tell that it's a real passion project of yours. Oh, I appreciate that. Yeah, of course. But tell me, let's have you give an introduction a little bit about yourself. And Absolutely. Okay. So listeners know, will know my channel, uh, The Fox Den, and my at is at Fox Therapy LLC, just because that's my, uh, my company, Fox Therapy. So um, I am a licensed professional counselor, LPC, uh, in the state of Colorado. And all that means is I got a master's in mental health and fulfilled the requirements um, of education and of experience and supervision to be a therapist, to call myself one, to bill insurance, to diagnose people and have that uh, be legally binding. Um, those are the kind of the perks. I can't prescribe medicine because that's, that's only a medical psychiatrist thing. Most psychologists can't even prescribe. That's in some 
that's in two different states where I think three now. So that's, um, but that's the only thing I can't do. So I'm basically a shrink. Um, I've been doing it full time since can't believe it since 2014. Um, the last five years have been worth all the education in the world because you get the foundation of the stuff that works, the techniques and everything in training. And then you see, see it in action. And there's nothing like that dynamic feedback of, you know, theory and practice. So I, I had a real passion for, uh, I, I have a passion for making therapy applicable to people, especially a new generation. So millennials, which I mean, a lot of those are getting up close to 30. So, and then Gen Z, uh, and, and teaching them psychological tactics, theories, modalities, things like that, making it relevant, especially because it's so easy for people to go online and get depressed at what's out there. And like what you, t- what you tweet about in your unpopular thread or your un- unpopular truth thread, it, watching the news can make people feel terrible and just amplify that by looking at Twitter and, and looking at the, the news stories and looking at people's lives that are very curated on social media. That's a huge part of why younger generations are so depressed and anxious. And so part of my passion is helping them to realize all this stuff is very handpicked. This is why you're getting upset. It's a, you know, their confirmation bias and you're looking to see that people are, are living better lives and you're finding it, but it's not necessarily accurate. So um, I specialize a lot in trauma. That's my thing. So I'm EMDR certified and almost at consultant level, which just means I can help people desensitize negative memories. It's as cool as it sounds. So we don't take them away. (laughs) Is that like trauma from like abuse, emotional abuse, physical abuse, or sort of the whole gamut? Wonderful question. Yeah. So we we divide it up into kind of big T and little T trauma is the, the EMDR, the eye movement desensitization reprocessing school of thought, use it that way, where there's like developmental trauma of being taught that you're not good enough, like parents who are overly critical and basically cripple your self-esteem. So that's traumatic, but it's not the big T trauma of sexual assault or war, right? So people will often say, oh, well, I'm not traumatized at all. Okay. You know, clients I'll have, and and I'll dig deeper. Oh, a parent told them whenever you have free time, you better be busy. You better never relax. It's never Uh good enough. I think the critical parent, like maybe let's start the conversation there because that's, all the child development stuff, I think, right. I think, you know, and I sort of tweeted about this and we were going to talk about this, but it's like a yep. lot of those childhood issues. And this is me just from reading and sort of observing. So I, you probably have much better gauge on this, that a lot of those childhood traumas and issues are then that then that becomes an adult with an issue like that. Like, let's say somebody has a super critical parent as a yes. kid. How do you fix that? How do you get past that? That's such a good question. Um, the, the way that you get past that is look at that intro. So I'm going to go Freudian a little bit here. I'm going to go psychoanalytic. So we can look at how people ingest their values and self-worth at a young age. So people are very malleable, like soft soil when they're young, right? Like, and so they're very susceptible to shaping. And when you're younger, you don't have defense mechanisms. You're, you form them in response to incoming stimulation and incoming experiences. So people will learn to be very self uh, degrading or conscious. They'll learn to make people laugh maybe as a way to diffuse tension and people like that can become comedians. That's not the origin of all comedians, but it's an example of people um, developing their personalities in response to familial environment, right? Some people become peacemakers because they can't deal with anxiety, everybody fighting. Some people become kind of problem children because that's how they get attention. 
Um, so it's like anything else where when someone has professionistic parents, they learn to really strive to get that. People crave positive feedback. And if you condition them to, that they only get it if they try so hard, then it's like a slot machine. People will get addicted to slot machines because it's intermittent reinforcement. It's sometimes you win, sometimes you don't. If you win all the time, it's boring. If you never win, it's very uh, bo it's boring and, and disheartening as well. And people will say F that and walk away. But if people kind of are striving constantly for that parental approval that sometimes comes through, then they get this almost desperate desire to please and to always go above. And oh my gosh, even if I've got 100, I got to get that extra credit, right? Um, people introject, they internalize that parental voice of, well, are you sure you did everything? Are you sure it's good enough? Always questioning. And that's where that imposter syndrome comes from, by the way, too, is somehow not getting the impression that you're good enough, like there's something hollow. Anyway, um, the way people can get through that as adults is, for one thing, being very mindful that their physiological sensations of anxiety are just that. So people will typically notice something and have a sensation, which they then label as a feeling, which then leads to thoughts. So mindfulness and interfering with that cycle of, uh, feeling like an imposter, feeling the lump in the throat, just noticing that purposefully tensing and relaxing the muscles in response to stress and just so progressive muscle relaxation. Body hacks that help you realize that emotions are really just sensations that we're putting labels to. I challenge anybody to think about anxiety without having a part of that be physiological. It's not, you can't do it. Anxiety is always a physical experience. So that's like just people on their own should, should pursue mindfulness. But if they really want to get serious about exercising that demon of perfectionism, um, EMDR and other desensitization therapy. So like uh, an example would be systematic desensitization is very helpful because what it does is it teaches people to notice what they're anxious about. And this is with the help of a therapist or professional, you're exposed to the source of anxiety, like not doing well enough, and you sit with it and you notice you're not dead. I mean, it sounds very macabre, but it's not. It's like OCD desensitization. You notice, wait a minute, the spider's not killing me, right, if you have arachnophobia. It's facing it and, and thinking about, okay, so what, what if I make this mistake? Oh, it's unbearable, it feels terrible. Okay, follow that, let sit with that. And people start to learn that their anxieties don't control them. And, really just good old fashioned narrative therapy of looking at instances where you you lived up to your potential. And if not looking at instances when you can and seeing it is not that overwhelming, seeing that you can build up instances of competency that go against that, that very flat, thin narrative, that pamphlet almost of self perspective of I'm a failure. Well, let's look at that. What, when did you succeed? Why aren't you feeling the success? Okay. Let's have you really notice it. People are usually in tune with their anxiety too much and they're not seeing it uh, as excitement. So one big therapy that's becoming popular now that I completely, completely support is anxiety reappraisal therapy. So it, people probably haven't heard of it. It's very new. It involves when you're anxious, repeating to yourself, I'm excited or, and noticing it's really the same physiological signature. It's whether or not you label it aversive because think about it. People like most people before public speaking to a crowd, they're either scared senseless or they're like, oh man, kind of getting pumped up. Pumped up and anxious are kissing cousins. They're the same thing. It's just one's confident. Yeah. So I threw a yeah. lot out there. The, the takeaway um, would be desensitize good. the inner critic 
and build up stories of success. And how you desensitize should be something that is very researched and peer validated. So don't do stuff that beats up on yourself more. One of my pet peeves is hearing voices on Twitter saying, well, you feel bad about yourself. It's because you're worthless. Get better, get better. Well, that doesn't really give people a roadmap. That's more like, like a, a, okay, telling somebody what they already heard. And I love that you don't, you give people actionable steps. Well, thank you. Yeah. No, I I think I try to, well, I I think I, I, I'm, I was not a person. I wasn't a person who had a a parent that was overly critical, but I would say one thing I was going to observe from what you said is I think most people are in their emotions. I, I actually think that's one of the problems of current, like people in general, like they're just, they they confuse their emotions with like who they are or it's like allowing the weather to control your because some you know your thoughts your feelings sometimes you really can't control them so if you allow those things to just sway you back and forth all over the place you're gonna be all over the place that's exactly (laughs) what it is grounded i almost feel like it's like like low level emotions block like a like a like the deeper emotions or the spiritual emotions like you're not grounded you described it as excitement, but it's it's like, yeah, it, it's like you're on a high. It's like not grounded. It's not, not a solid thing. You're, you're, you're being driven by an impulse or a reaction. Yeah, and, and we know that Jocko Willink talks about the value of discipline. And, and we know a lot of the self-help experts that have lived it and have systems. One of the biggest things to do is to start small and, and create discipline and and patterns of behavior so that you're not just emotionally driven people have this cult of the artist where they feel that and they believe that well i have to be inspired to write better i have to do this i have to do that maybe have a cup of coffee you know get sufficiently caffeinated as is healthy or indicated for your body and sit down and just start writing small start working it out but this idea that you have to feel like doing stuff, you nailed it, yeah. is really detrimental. Because then, the yeah, you get in the way when you feel, when you're an audience, when you're kind of judging yourself, then it's going to get you out of that feeling of creating anyway. And you're never going to get in that when you're looking at it. It's like the, the watched clock never moves. So one thing, social media and, and current culture does a great job of helping people to overly identify with their feelings, it's cognitive fusion, it's I am my thoughts, it's the exact opposite of mindfulness, of seeing thoughts as stimuli, it's seeing thoughts as truth, or emotions as truth. One of the biggest problems therapists face with clients is clients, the the cognitive distortion, we wanna talk CBT, of emotional reasoning, of I feel this way, therefore it's true. I feel like someone doesn't like me because maybe they're busy or whatever, and I mean, of course, there's examples where that's true, but and reasoning out that something's true just because of your heart rate or what you had, just some coffee, right? That gave you hot and it's completely detrimental. Yeah. I think it, it's actually like, it's so widespread the, and I think it affects like, you know, I, I actually think it's the reason why the, the people that have found each other on Twitter, this little community, yeah. like why were these people all at the same time looking for, because I actually think, one thing I've noticed, like even just in, in friendships, like everyone is too, 
it's like a selfishness is how I guess I could describe it as simply like everybody is too in their own thoughts. They're too in their own point of view. They're too in their own emotions. And they're always judging like who's, who's wrong them here. Who's wrong them there. Like, it's just a very, we're living through very self-centered and, and very um, not very self-caring or, or, or even love. Like, like they're paranoid about themselves. They think people don't like them. And then people prove that to them. It's like this very strange uh, downward spiral of uh, narcissism. I don't know if that's the proper. It is. So but it's a, no, you, you nailed it. It is a, a spiral of narcissism. It is. A, so, so what your listeners, what I, a big takeaway I always want people to walk away from, for me, is that there are two kinds of, of narcissisms out there, at least really. You've got your typical grandiose narcissist that, that is in TV and other media that you can spot a mile away, very blustery, very self-assured, like the alpha male gone bad kind of character. And then you've got the fragile narcissist who is a time sink, who is the black hole of woe is me. Let me pull you in to assuage and take away my pain. And it's never enough. And it's an empathy trap. So empaths and people who like to fix will be targeted. It's amazing. You can look at that kind of, you could almost take an evolutionary or viral view of it where like when people are infected with this narcissistic virus through their raising or whatever transmitted generationally, then um, they seek out that they're controlling the host and then the host looks for uh, people who are highly attuned to empaths, right? And will find people who will listen to them. And part of it you could say is kind of just natural selection of as you talk to people, the only ones who are going to stay and put up with the BS are empathic because they feel sorry. You could look at it that way. But fragile narcissism is on the rise. And I think when people don't understand how someone with depression isn't getting better, when everything is pointing in the direction that they should, maybe they're getting good therapeutic care, they're getting affirmation, they're, they're pursuing their hobbies. Well, it may just be that the person has fragile narcissism. And the good news is it's treatable. The person has to recognize though that their self-esteem needs to come from within and not from constant care from others. There has to be an interjection of a parental love on a, on a very symbolic level. A, a huge thing that's causing an epidemic in narcissism now is parents are teaching their kids that, their, that the kids can do no wrong and that everything's perfect. And then when a kid gets out in the world and someone dares to correct one thing that they've done, maybe on the job or in school, the kid's world shatters because they recognize, wait a minute, I was told this about myself and yeah. now someone's saying it's not true. So just to have empathy for people like that, it's an existential crisis when you're, if your whole life, a parent. So I was, I was that person, I think to a large degree, my mother was very super supportive, like in a, in a lot of good ways, but you know, in a way, in some ways where moms are like, you know, they, they just think their sons could do anything. <laughs> So then you're a single, you know, you, your mother raises you, single, uh, only child. You come out into the world and the world's like, nope, nope, not good enough. Nope, you don't have that. Nope, that job is not, nope. So it was a, it was definitely a, a bit of a shock to the system. Right. Yeah. And I took a, 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 I would say, I guess the way I described it was like, uh, I had to humble myself. Is, is what is what had to happen. I had to just either there was two ways for me to take it. I could get an ego about it and say, "Oh, the whole world's wrong," or I could say, "Well, maybe I was incorrect here, and this is actually reality." 
and what are you what are you going to do about it so i sort of took this the latter route but um but yeah i definitely what you just said there felt like it was a decent description of me <laughs> well i appreciate your candor because i mean what it does is it lets people know this is not an excuse this is not a crippling diagnosis i do not believe and i think it's harmful when people view narcissism is this all-encompassing thing so it's a personality disorder in the sense of it's the way someone views things it's their personality self that's the issue but it's not incurable by any stretch of the imagination it's not like spot the narcissist they're a, they are themselves the virus no it's what they have that's that's somewhat damaging and for someone with a, and for you it was probably never at personality disorder level it was just you were taught this by your mother and when you came into contact with something that was different you, you, you accommodated. So there's two big growth for, there's two big responses to growth inducing situations. There's accommodation and assimilation. So you can assimilate incoming knowledge into your paradigm or you have to accommodate yourself to meet it. So people will usually just assimilate things into their worldview. But when you find something that defies your worldview about yourself, you're met with the choice to be in denial about it and just reject it or to, to accommodate, to change. So what we're now getting into, you and I, is a discussion on development and how people now, so development is always painful. It's like growing pains. It's a, it's a cliche for a reason. It's a very good analogy. As you develop, you start to see more and more truths that at first are very blinding, but then your eyes adjust. And you start to develop a better boundary of where you begin and where the world ends and vice versa. But when you, as a construct, just... as are encompassed in everything like social media. It's your experience with everyone else. Everything is becoming like we absorb everything in ourselves and it's all about us now. It's very little that comes up against us that we have to, that smacks us. The only things that, that really do that now would be if we have accountability partners like friends or family that keep us accountable or school or work. And people are now trying to make work and school be, be areas where you're immune to criticism. And it's, you're, what it'll do is it'll stop all growth and development of the personality. Yeah, I could, I could see that. I think for myself, I, I sort of forced that situation on myself where I, I quit a job and I was, I, I had to deal with the fact that I wasn't ready. I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I wasn't ready. So it literally like humbled, like I just ate it. I ate crap for like two years and was not, but I, I, one of the things that, that you made me think of was, I think the mistake that some, that a lot of people make is the whole, they try to pump kids up with um, self-esteem. Sure. And, and one thing that helped me in the process of like trying to, un, trying to almost accept where I was at because I, because I was a little pissed, like, okay, the world isn't how, you know, I imagine, you know, it, no, the, the world's not just going to put a red carpet out for me. So, but, so I had to forgive myself. It was like, I, I almost felt stupid for, for thinking that. I felt like how, how in the world did I, was I this off? Was my, you know, you, you feel ridiculous. You're like, this is like really bad. Your, your reality was over here and your mind was over here. Like where else, where else am I? You start questioning, you know, where else did I miss the, the, the target on this? So the, sure. reading this book by, um, I think her name is Christian Neff, which was called Self-Compassion. Yes, Kristen Neff. She's a, she's a yeah. mindfulness guru. Yes, I'm familiar with her very much. So, so I really liked 
that approach because it it wasn't like I was pitying myself and it wasn't like I was blowing smoke up, you know, it was more like, here's the, here's the proper way to treat yourself in general. Like you treat, like I, the way that I took away from it. And I say this on Twitter sometimes, um, I don't think I've said it recently, but it's like, treat yourself like your, your best friend that you really, yes. yes. I, I really think about that constantly. And I think like, even when you fail, so then what I did in that scenario, right. So I'm, you know, sort of feeling bad about myself. My self-worth is low. My self-esteem is low, whatever. And I'm just like, all right, well, I still know I have potential. Like, I still know, I still know that if I want to do whatever I want to do in life, I just have to do it. Like, now I know the truth. Like, I'm closer to it. So it was like, it just accepting that scenario and, and almost treating myself like a, like a friend, like a friend that you're like, oh, okay, you, you screwed up. All right, well, dust yourself off and, and get back up because you, you have potential. So yes. that, I feel like that's underappreciated. The whole self-love, self-care, a lot of people view that as like, more narcissism and more selfishness um but i don't think so i think it's like healthy inner talk it's like there's a difference right there's a difference between i'm gonna portray to the outside world that i'm i'm so confident and i'm super everything's on point versus actually you just what you actually tell yourself internally like honestly like you know being honest with yourself like oh here's where i'm at but i can move forward like it's a very like, like it's in some ways it's what your your parents a good parent would have done and would have sort of created in you as like a good inner talk like I, I always actually maybe you can correct me on this but I always look at it like a, a healthy adult has some of the inner talk that was healthy from the father and some of the inner talk that was healthy from the mother and the way I differentiate between that is well the mother is like the super supportive side usually right and then the father's the one that's like keeping you a little honest, like, okay, like let's get some reality to the situation. And if you have a healthy balance of those things, like you can actually grow because you're not just deluding yourself on one end and you're not being too hard on yourself on the other. So that's right. why I think you need a good mother and father because then that creates those inner thoughts and those thoughts lead to actions and they lead to behaviors and all that. Yeah, I think that's absolutely accurate. And I think just to, you know, widen it and, and be the diversity voice, it, it can be sometimes a, a mother who may be more personality based in, you know, logic, objective stuff. Maybe your father's a school teacher, your mother's a lawyer or something. Sure. It kind of is a different polarity. It's, it is about kind of the empathy and the objectivity. It's, Empathy and ambition. Well, I like the dip, discipline and, and love. Is how yes. I like it. it's fair. It's, oh, that's beautiful. It's, yeah. Someone, I met this uh, assistant teacher once. I, I volunteered at this. Um, sometimes I go to schools and I, and I do like teach kids about entrepreneurship. It's called Junior Achievement. I, yes, I know exactly what it is. I was in a yeah. class like that when I was younger, by the way. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Well, I want to ask you in a second what your Please. thoughts on that are. But the... So I met this assistant teacher and she tells me, she, she, for whatever reason, she's like, you look like someone who knows that you need to have love and discipline to parent children. And I'm like, looking at this lady, I'm like, this lady's reading my mind because that's exactly, <laughs> but she goes that, that love without discipline is, is neglect and discipline without love is abuse. Yes. I was like, wow, yes. that's really, that's actually very good. 
and she read this somewhere. I don't remember where, where she read it, but I was like, that's actually the balance, right? And you actually have to have, that's the internal balance. That's why I don't, I don't like the over, like you mentioned Jack Willinick, and I, I really like him. And I think, you know, there's, you need all different types of voices, positive voices out there. But I do think the actual proper balance is love and discipline because then you're not too harsh. You sort of, you know, when you're like, well, you know what? I, I need to sleep more. Okay. Like could get up at four 30 in the morning, but I'm going to feel terrible and not be productive and in a good mood. So I actually need to hit the snooze button today because <laughs> the love part wins. And then on other days you're like, all right, you, you've slacked off for four or five days. You got to get at it. Like you need to go to the gym or you need to work on that, you know, book your writing and you, put the discipline on but I feel like you need to have both of those tools to keep a nice balance and to keep your to not burn yourself out or or delude yourself a hundred percent you need to have so Carl Rogers I'm going to lean on him you know the great therapist himself who gave us client-centered therapy which was formerly person-centered therapy or, or no it's flipped it was client-centered now it's person-centered um it just means um, it's very focused on client feelings, person feelings. Uh, people can say that he got a lot from Christ in terms of loving people unconditionally. Cause that's a big part of it. It's called unconditional positive regard, um, which is such a nice, very secular clinical way of saying love, isn't it? Um, so his quote that I'm thinking of is when I accept myself fully, then I'm free to change. And I may be paraphrasing it there, but that's, that, that is the thought. It's when you accept, when you have the grounding in love and empathy and you recognize I am, and this is the part where it's not narcissism. Let's be clear. Cause this also gets to your point of there's healthy self-esteem and narcissistic. When you recognize that you are, you are fully acceptable as an imperfect human being, you are free to grow. If you think I've either got to be perfect or I'm garbage that is a recipe for either grandiosity or shame, right? So when we look at it as the mother's love, the unconditional love, and the father's drive to keep growing, and the excitement of the journey, the excitement of the development, we're tapping into some very primal, archetypal, Jungian forces here. And there's, a, there's, there's not a coincidence, it's not a coincidence at all that this stuff keeps coming up across societies, the idea of, you know, uh, accepting things as they are and growing and it's a tension and it's a good tension to have. Um, so I just, I really like what you're saying about it because I think it's pretty accurate that it's just, you have to have some, you have to have love, but without it. So what you get is like two different approaches to therapy too, that can be the different caricatures. If you've got therapy that's basically enjoyable where you're talking with someone and they're validating you and it never, you don't grow at all. Then you've got the therapy of somebody from maybe someone who's very hyper masculine and like, what are you doing today? What are you doing to change? I don't want to hear any more about that. You know, I don't want to hear your belly aching. Okay. And it's so difficult to, to strike that balance, but good therapists, great therapists can strike that balance and we're all striving toward it, hopefully, but of listening and saying, I understand what you're saying. I might not feel, I don't know. I don't know exactly what you're saying. I know cognitively I hear you and I'm empathizing with you. And now let's change it, But it, the other, the, it's either, no, it doesn't matter what you're saying. Let's work on change or wow. I feel it. It's like not following it up with any change. So those are the two errors is it's like acceptance, yeah. no action or action at the, at the complete 
uh, detriment of caring about the person. Yeah, no, I, I think I like the way you put it that it's a that it's a polarity. I hadn't I hadn't thought about it like that, but I think it makes a ton of sense. And I think me me personally, I sort of pull on those two polarities. I, I mean, think it's a I, spectrum too. You're it's a, you're along the. Yeah, I think I think I pull on those. Like that's how I like sometimes I pull out the discipline <laughs> tool and I'm like, I need to finish this book. And for 10 days, I'm all I'm doing is going to work and writing a book. And then for another 10 days, I'm like, I don't want to look at like anything regarding work. And I just go to the other, or I'm like, you know, what? I need to go to the steam room or relax. Like I love the steam room. <laughs> so, but I, I think, and it's actually one what you're making me think is like, it's one of the problems that I actually see in this whole men's area, or I don't know what you want to call it, manosphere, whatever you want to yeah. call it. Yeah. Twitter is that it is, or even in self-improvement in general, because I don't think Jacko Willenick is part of this part of Twitter. No. Where, where the, the masculine, or I guess the male um, self-improvement influencers, whatever you want to call them, are very discipline-driven. Um, and I actually think that's one of the, not that I, I'm a full-blown influencer. I sort of think I, I tell myself I'm not, but maybe I am. I don't know. Whatever I am, I think I balance out that what makes me a little different is that I, that I recognize this need for being kind to yourself. And I actually think there's a lot, like there's so much powerful emotion when you can pull from that direction of like actually really loving yourself and, and, and um, like appreciating your own journey like and not dismissing yourself and what you've done and then also being able to just like will yourself to do something when you combine those things it's it's, it's a powerful thing i can tell you that because i i know what it's like to not feel that and and be very like procrastinating and i can't finish anything and i can't choose an idea and then to go to the to the place where i'm at today where it's like i decide and it's done almost it's a that's actually i think why i'm on twitter because I, I see what I'm doing and then I think about the people that were probably like me two, three years ago. And I'm like, if more people could, like, and there was nothing special about me. All I did was just sort of put some pieces together and just started rubbing the, you know, the wood together. And then I can like act and, and be, and, and, and then enjoy it. Like I'm in, like I'm happy and I can accomplish things. Like this is like a nice spot where I would then I think I look at the world I'm like more people can reach this spot if we just do a couple things differently <laughs> um but yeah but you're making me realize maybe that's what what why I'm on Twitter and, and why I'm talking about these things well I think that's I think that's very viable and valid I mean the the basis of empathy from a psychoanalytic perspective is projection talking about growth and development yeah the, the importance of recognizing, hey, I went through this and someone else probably is as well. It's a real uh, social interest there and in, in going outside of ourselves. I think I realized when I started tweeting, and, and actually I think this is what, in some ways my own experience, like what I said around having a over a super supportive mother, which sort of created some delusion in myself, which actually I think is very common. And then having a father who was, had his own issues, was alcoholic, had his own uh, mental, like he was 
bipolar and had his own things was not real not, not a real father figure i also think is becoming increasingly common that's where it it's almost like where that you know i think i'm not the first person to say it but it's like your your own challenges become the thing that you can help other people with true that's what i realized like you know what i there's there's positives to what obviously to my mother raising me like i think i'm more in touch with my own let's call it feminine side whatever you want to call it or or sensitive side but then i also have a strong i also have a strong desire partially because of the fact that i didn't have it in my life but partially because the more i push more masculine energy into my life my life improves um so i feel like yeah i've, I've hit on this nice balance that it's almost like i need to share it <laughs> yeah it i think it. yes and i think that's where a lot of the people also from the ion group um jump in and share what they've learned and that's that's a big conversation is what what have you found that works? What have you found about yourselves? Maybe whatever vulnerabilities you're willing to share and how you've overcome them. And it's fascinating because that's, I see a direction of therapy and uh, like maybe not in quotes therapy, you know, that's, that's sanctioned by the ACA or APA, but it's kind of a grassroots led response to the alienation and confusion to, to the societal cultural arms race of narcissism is it's like a weaponized in a good way version of um empathy and so it's like empathy in a grand scale versus narcissism in a grand scale so i'm all for it and i think that people uh, sadly though if, without maturity people don't really get that it doesn't it takes an ability to be vulnerable but in a way that's not self-indulgent it's very easy to be self-indulgent with it. And I think that it's rare that people aren't just because you have to reach that level of maturity. But I always say too, like for where, where they in that victim, like, I don't know. I, I, I look at myself as somebody who my role here is to protect good people. Like that's actually, part of my role and I don't know if that's a, from being a man or whatever uh -huh. so when when people when people are harmed or they're or they're victims of things I that concerns me what concerns me more is the part of our culture that wants to keep people defined as victims it like really yes. pisses me off <laughs> and it's like why are you convinced like and, I, and, I, and I've said this before, I think it's true. It's like, the, if you want to, if you were a victim and you want to convince the world that you're a victim, the world will actually let you. Like the world will keep you in the bubble of being a victim. If like, it actually has to be your choice to say, no, I'm like, I can move past this and I'm not defined by this one incident or whatever the incident was. Right. And I, th I just think it's a lot more powerful of a message to tell someone that, you know, obviously everyone has to go through their own like stages of, you know, whatever trauma they've gone through. Development, yeah. But there comes a point where it's like, okay, but you're not going to let that, whatever occurred actually harm your life. Like that would be much worse than probably what occurred right to you, yeah. your long-term well-being. So. Yeah. One way I put it is you're not responsible for the trauma that happened to you as a person, but you are responsible for your growth. And yes, 
that sucks. It sucks that people can be hurt and not have any rhyme or reason for it. They didn't do anything to deserve it. But the way that works is you can only hurt, you can only heal an emotional, psychological wound from the inside. It, and now other people can be part of that. They can help you administer that. They can kind of help you administer the salve or whatever, you know, medic, medical uh, analogy you want to use. But ultimately it has to be you that ingests that new truth that obliterates the trauma. So what you're saying is, is accurate. I think with victim culture, I want to be careful because some people consider victim culture even complaining about anything. And then you've get people who think, that you should be able to get a letter that lets you out of um, public speaking in college or group projects because of anxiety. Well, if you don't have a diagnosable anxiety disorder and you just don't want to speak because it makes you nervous, I would really, really, really encourage you to overcome that because it is a healthy anxiety and the response is overcoming and proving you can do it, right? Uh, and that's, that's a very new thing is viewing any anxiety as something to be avoided. Well, what we do is we teach ourselves then that what it was really was scary and that it would kill us. We're, we're teaching our brain to fear everything. Read the, um, the upside of stress. Yes, I'm familiar with it, but you'll refresh me on, on it. Maybe a quarter of it, but I got the gist of it. Basically she, she looked at studies where, it, that basically the way that you believe stress affects you, like if you believe stress is positive on, right. your, on yourself versus you believe it's negative, that that's actually how it affects you. Right. And so okay. they did studies where they told certain amount of students like, hey, this stress is going to be good. And then that's how the students responded. <laughs> and then they told other students like, oh, it, like, you know, how typically stress is described, that it's going to be bad. So basically her, her conclusion is like, it's not like you want to be stressed out 24 seven, but it's a lot of how stress is handled in the body and the mind is based on your, how you perceive stress. Well, absolutely. So that gets into the anxiety reappraisal theory of if you view anxiety as excitement and is an indication that you're about to perform well and achieve whatever it is, then you'll feel better about it. And your narrative about anxiety, AKA stress will be adaptive. So it looks like the research is converging on that, which I'm very excited for because it spells a new era of therapy. Um, I want to jump into some of the stuff that you'd said you wanted to talk about. So questions about um, when people give up on their, their dreams and what brings that up. Talk to, talk to us about that. Hit me with it. I sort of touched on it, or at least what my answer would be like, I think you said something before about accepting, like accepting where you are. And I, I had this realization reading um, Letting Go recently. I, I have the Audible for Letting Go by David Hawkins. Really good book, like a little bit like esoteric, but less than his other books. But like very, you listen to this, it's like this guy is on to something like it, it's a very good book. And he makes this, this, this distinction that I hadn't made before between accepting and resigning yourself to something. Right. And I think that actually most people, even though they haven't reached their dreams or whatever, they, have, if they haven't accepted it. They have resigned themselves and they're actually stuck in that. They're still stuck in that actual dream like, or in the story of that dream. 
Like they're the failure in the story of that dream. Ah, yes. Instead of saying like, oh, well, I wanted to be a basketball player when I was a kid. Now this might be a ridiculous example, but there could be somebody out there. I don't doubt that there is. I wanted to be a basketball player. But at some point I accepted like, well, I'm not tall enough. I wasn't good enough. I'm not going to be a basketball player. So, but I think for, for certain people just never accept that. They sort of make the judgment. They place themselves like, oh, I tried to do this. I wanted to be a doctor and I couldn't do it. And then that's it. It's like they're stuck instead of like, like, actually, I remember I was, um, before, before I got this job here, I, um, I was a, I went to two interviews and I had no idea how well I did. Like I had got, I sort of had gotten sick of like judging, like, did I do well? Did I do poorly? I literally like was leaving and I just thought like, no matter what happens in these two interviews, like if I have to go and like drive Uber to survive, I'm going to just drive Uber. Like, I don't care. And I got like, I got an offer from the job that I'm sitting at right now. And I, and I connect that with, I was accepting of whatever result. And I think there's this principle that, that David Hawkins talks about, which is, that the world sort of is repelled by something that needs, it's like the, it's actually, a, a, you know, the, it's sort of a, a, a dating dynamic too, right? The more you want the girl, the less, there's a, there's a push and pull. <laughs> the yes. more you're like wanting, you're desperate or you, you show desperation, the more you repel the thing. So the more you're like, I need this job. I have to have this job. You're actually telling the universe is what David Hawkins says, whether, you want to believe that or not. But I think there is some truth to it. I've experienced it to some extent where you're like repelling things. And then when you just, and it's almost like people can sense that level of you're expecting it and it turns them off. It's like if you were to approach a girl and you're like, you think that you've got it all. You know what I mean? They're going to be like, whoa, like there's a weird energy going. Yes, I know exactly what you're talking about. People don't accept where they're at. And it doesn't mean like you're, you're just giving in and saying like, like you're, you're not resigning yourself. I think that's, there's this distinction that he really hit on that. I'm like, that's actually a very subtle distinction, but it's really important. Yes. So my answer would be when people give up on things, I mean, it, it comes down to learned helplessness. So I liked um, when Zach Slayback was talking with you about the conditioning that schools do of what to expect from the future. I can't believe how well that aligns with what I would say. I mean, he was talking about the behaviorist thing of learning to accept drudgery and pain as your, your kind of penalty for your free time. And I mean, that, I went deep with that. I was listening to that podcast while driving. I was like, okay, so this is, this makes sense because people will talk about, you know, living for the week, weekend warriors. And you talk about if you're working for the weekend, that that's a bad thing. And your threat of unpopular truths. So I would say when people determine that they just can't do it when they, when they feel very dejected and whatever it is, they either don't want to put the effort into it because they think it's too hard and not worth it and boring or that they literally can't do it. Now for things that are more abstract, like I want to be a baseball star or a fireman or whatever. And you think, Oh, I can't do that. Okay. Maybe that's the natural evolution of there was like, it was like an archetypal job you were going for. And there's ways you can put that kind of helping impulse that you were going to use as a fireman into something else, like being a dispatcher or whatever that looks like. So that's like a healthy realignment there of your goals, right? But if it's based on, oh, I wanted to be a doctor, 
but I just don't want to study this stuff. I fail the science test and it's such a blow to my ego that even though I'm usually good at science and maybe I didn't understand a question or, or a few of them, obviously, or, or something like that, I just, I'm going to write that off. It's not worth it, you know, and it's like a sour grape sort of fallacy then that's a bad giving up, right? There's giving up due to just realigning and learning. Maybe it's not your competency and then giving up because it just, it hurts too much to grow and to fail toward your goals. So I would say it's whenever people really give in to learn helplessness, when they learn no matter what they do, it's not going to work. That's a big reason people give up on their dreams too, is it's, they learn also, that there's yeah. some safety too, right? In the comfort zone, not trying, right? There's a yeah. safety because you never actually have to show the world. Like you don't have to risk failing. You sort of fail in, in, in quiet. You yeah. just go unnoticed instead of like actually going and failing publicly or, or attempting, or even not, not right. only that, even to, to yourself, because if you, you can, you can continue to, to have in your mind, like, Oh, I could have, I could have, I could have. Like, why do people end up dying with the regret that they didn't know what they could be? Because they were the ones keeping the, I could have, like until the last moment, instead of actually finding out. Like, they don't want to find out that they actually maybe weren't. Right. Because it's much safer to just say, well, I still can. It's easier to live. It's like, uh, I don't know if you've heard Jordan Peterson talk about this, but he uses the Peter Pan analogy. It's pretty, it's pretty fascinating where he says like, Peter Pan is the example of like a kid with potential, right? But as, at some point in order to mature, you have to kill that potential and choose something. Like you have to sacrifice all these, like, you know, whatever potential you had to do a bunch of different things to just go and do one thing. And, and most people, because they're not mature enough, are not willing to, to make that sacrifice. You're right. Find You're right. out what they're made of. So one thing I want to hit on with that is that this is such a great point here. Um, the, if there's a culture, the pendulum tends to swing in culture wildly from one extreme to the other. So you've you had previous generations where, you know, my father was a carpenter. I'm going to be one, or he was a, an estate law, a real estate lawyer. And by God, you better be one too, son. So you had people whose entire identities were circumscribed and determined before they're freaking 17. Okay. And then now the pendulum has swung with Generation Z, I mean, not Generation Z, Generation X parents, right, who have raised their kids and thought, wow, that boomer and older way of doing things really didn't work. It, you know, it was way too emotionally restricted and we'll just do this because this is you earn a living and you man up, okay? So they've gone potentially the other way into, well, be whatever you want. You don't have to make a decision. It'll come to you. You'll know what you want to do. All of these very good, and it's pernicious because some myths like you need to just do what makes money, kid, that, that on the face value, is it sounds bad and it's hurtful and we can spot that. But other lies are more covered with honey and very palatable, right? Like, oh, your ideal job will just come to you. It'll be a mystical manifestation. Uh, that's not necessarily true. And it makes people actually feel horrible if they're, if they're broken and they don't get that. Yeah. 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 I would say that's a problem. Now, when you talk about not buckling down and striving towards something, it's because these people are taught that you don't really have to make a choice ever. It's a real cop out. It's like, I never have to say no to one thing.
things that he, that this is actually came from it's an akira the don song this jordan ah. peterson clip i love akira the don but he he says that you have to sacrifice those potentials and then like let's say you specialize now and now you become an expert in a in a field that right. then once again you can you have new potential because now you're someone skilled in one thing but you can it's like you 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 re you re you resurrect part of the child in you yes it's a brilliant insight i'm like man jordan peterson is freaking smart as heck because i think that makes a ton of sense that people they almost think they need to kill this they like the potential part of them right but it's like no you got to actually apply yourself and then now you'll be someone skilled with potential again you just got to actually just apply yourself to be will be willing to take the risk to do something and choose something and work and be like you know into that craft and do it and and risk failing at it and then later on if you do that well you now you the options open up to you even more because yes. now you're an expert and a lot of people don't understand that even if you pick a path of, of programming or studying law, whatever you're doing, usually the constituent elements of a skilled trade are translatable to other things. So critical thinking, um, studying things, synthesizing knowledge. The more you do that, it's not you do you are walking away from other paths. The more you pursue one, that's true you can double back around if it's not for you and do something else. Many people kind of get their, get a start for a second chapter. A lot of therapists, for instance, not me, because I started in that, in this young, but a lot of therapists are people who maybe went into something that was a lot more hard science and decided they really wanted to take the lessons or, or go elsewhere with it. And they, they have, they're now therapists that bring a different perspective to it. So you don't always have to settle on, one path even though you're going down it and learning it now people it's it's far better to to plunge into something and get to know it than it is to be in that sort of analysis paralysis of whether or not it's the right thing for you that's one thing we've lost from the past is it didn't become an equation of is there somebody on the other side of the world who's a better fit for me than this partner from college it's like you didn't have that yeah married the village you you married your high school or next door neighbor village sweetheart or whatever and you weren't in this paralysis of constantly swiping and that's something that's not really being addressed by a lot of voices in the manosphere or wherever it's it's like the man up view of of masculinity or whatever it is that gets people are facing a lot of things now that are that are paralyzing in a psychological way that we haven't faced before and i'm not a doomsayer i'm using zoom to have a conversation with someone another state for God's sake I think technology is amazing it brings us together in many ways but it certainly divides if you're not aware of the effects it has on the psyche yeah other thoughts that I had on this that that I want to get your 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 um, feedback on you mentioned drudgery and I, and I actually was reading this book um, it's called a man's value to society it was written in 1901 if you're listen to my podcast on it, I think I feel like I'm always reading some old book but this is my <laughs> this is my recent hobby but he had this quote that said ideals redeem life from drudgery yeah I actually think that this is one of the problems I think there's two problems that aren't talked about about why people are not happy with like why they give up on their dreams or why there's like the or they're very they're actually very quick to give up on their dreams and I think it's number one is that they don't 
there's no longer any ideals. No one aspires to be like, if you read these books from the 18, 1900s, their aspirations, it's like, they call it like a godly character. Now they were religious people, but that's how they describe. I don't see that written anywhere anymore. Like we have a very, it's like the, um, the view of the world, this, this, this part that you can't see, we no longer have the faith in it. it I mean, I think actually is related to religion to some extent, but there's this, not this like striving or like pushing in a very um, hopeful way. It's, it's like a very, we're like living in very like um, reality based, rational based, like a little bit, not, aspiring to things so i think there's this lack of ideals lack of aspirations the other part that i think is missing which actually came up on the the ionosphere um, podcast that they did last night that that i was at, at least they made me think about it is this whole there's like this the, the fact that we've lost this sense of community right like communities have everyone everyone's sort of isolated right this isolation of the connections that you have now are very not as deep as they were before when you were living with a tribe. But there was also like a moral way of being that came with this where people like felt like they had a sense of duty and honor and responsibility. And I think we think, we think that we've evolved past the need to have these things, but like imagine like, so this quote ideals redeem life from drudgery. The person who probably read this quote in 1901 was probably shoveling coal into a, the back of a train like that was actual drudgery like these people had to think this way they had to have ideals they had to look to the future and say my life is going to be better than you know shoveling hot coal and sweating my face off like they had to actually think but in some in some ways i think we have it so easy and we're so because we're not centered around why we're doing it for the better of our fellow man that we just it's all about our own our own thing oh my dreams it's almost like i look at like dreams are like a it's like a consumer version of or a more selfish version of like no ideals like where like what are you what do you actually want to be like your dream is all about you like what are you actually trying to person you're trying to be for the betterment of the not just you like the world around you and i think that's the part that's it's like a hollowness there's not like a depth to these dreams like oh i want to be mark zuckerberg well I don't want to be Mark Zuckerberg. That guy, he's immoral. Like, the, what, what, what value has that company really, in some ways, brought to the world? Like, I, I just feel like there's, there's this lack of actual aspirations and ideals. And there's this lack of people doing, like, like, no one appreciates the fact that everything that we have was given to us by people that actually put, like, we're shoveling coal and we're, you know, up on skyscrapers 100 feet you know, thousands of feet in the air risking their lives. And we just take it all for granted. We don't think we have to, it's actually the problem with the manosphere too, right? There's, there's, there's no sense of that they have to give anything back to that, that, to that stockpile of civilization. I think that's actually really incorrect way, way of thinking. Like, I don't know if I do a, a great job at this, but I've been, the more I read, the more I'm like, no, I do. There is a sense of duty. We, that's actually what's missing. We need to have a sense of duty towards each other. There's like a higher meaning to what we're doing. And that's when you can like see through the drudgery, whatever you think is, is drudgery because you have a vision for something better. But I feel like everybody's vision is just like not very 
it's not inspiring. So then their lives are just drudgery. <laughs> well, that's a, a wonderful point. Yeah, I'll, we'll unpack that. So first off, a, a quote from one of the pioneering uh, therapists of the existential therapy movement, Viktor Frankl, is a man with meaning can withstand anything. So Viktor Frankl was a Nazi concentration camp survivor, Jewish individual, and he, clearly he went through hell. He made meaning and, and got to know fellow survivors. I mean, people can, can look at his book, Man's Search for Meaning. I heavily, heavily recommend it. Uh, if you really want to feel better about circumstances and look at how people survive absolute horror, not drudgery, but just existential terror itself. So for one thing we know, if you, the, you make meaning of, of what you're doing, your work, your existence, and you automatically have more investment and it gives you a guidepost there. So postmodernism has essentially obliterated a lot of the narratives, the meta narratives of why things matter. Okay. So the age of postmodernism is coming to a close and metamodernism is rising, which Seth Abramson writes a lot about. It's essentially saying, well, to heck with the, the death of the meta narratives and the um, discrepancies, let's build stuff. We'll cobble together our meanings. And so you get these primordial sort of meetings online and the different communities in the manosphere, some of them being that saying, this is the meaning, this is the meaning and like trying to now supplement that the the lack that the kind of destruction of meta narratives left so meta narratives for for listeners just being things like religion or civic responsibility as key and, and things of that nature that held people together on a community level and and so some of that became very restrictive and people were subject to pain because of that not fitting in so you have that that's that downfall of community but then when we throw the baby out with the bathwater and now there's no accountability of standards and no meaning and people are confused about it, they usually don't know the reason why, though, that they're confused about why things are, have such this malaise to it. There's no urgency. Why do it? You know, I'll get another low-paying job or I'll go to another company. Like, what is the ultimate reason I'm even working just to kind of eke out an existence and maybe buy some, some weed and watch Netflix? Like, that's become the kind of standard base younger millennial existence is kind of like work for the off times and the fun and just the, the very, the very acceptable form of fun that doesn't really, it's just kind of passive. Right. Yeah. So to go to your point. Yeah. I think people have really lost a sort of community affiliation that would say, let's all strive to hone one another's character. Um, have a godly character strive for that. I mean, as someone who grew up as a Christian in the South, uh, people have different levels of striving for that, right? Even among the Christian community. And someone who has a drive to develop is going to be unstoppable because everything along the way, every hurdle has a narrative component. It's, well, this is, I'm growing past this. So someone with a narrative, with a meaning in that way, it can overcome everything because it all, it's their story and it, it gets into, well, this is a, a bump in the road of my own story. It's not that I'm fulfilling someone else's. Yeah. Um, I think you, I think you described it very accurately. And I think it's actually, it's, a, I don't know. I find it very sad and I, yeah. and I find it like defeatist. And I think, and, and I see a lot of people, like a lot of the advice online to young people is like, Oh, you don't like your job. Well, I'll just quit. 
and it's like uh like i what i i think my, i changed my own mentality on this when i enter opportunities i think the so low my experience has been is that the bar is so low that if you're just willing to approach things with a positive attitude and persistence and and not assume like the worst of people unless you're in a terrible place which could happen that you could actually move a lot further than you than you even think that you are but you but it's like people just expect it to happen without being those things without being positive without having a good work work ethic they just want like their dream job to fall on their <laughs> on their laps. I'm like, no, you have to, it's actually more fun the reverse way. It's actually more, you're actually more useful to a company that when you find out what it is that they need and then you become the person that fixes that because that's actually the solution. Like there is like who the heck wants to go and work at a place that doesn't need you. Like if they're so great, they don't need you. Like you're not needed there. You you, it's actually good. That, that's how you change your perspective. You look at a company and say, oh, that company could use what I could offer because I could do this, this, and that. And you go and you do it and you help them do it. And now you're someone who's delivered value versus I think, I guess it is entitlement that, that people criticize millennials. But it is some sense of entitlement. Like, no, there needs to be a place that deserves me, that treats me well, that gives me all the perks, that gives me responsibility. It's like, dude, what have you done to earn that? <laughs> So it's a very like backwards way that actually is self-fulfilling because it doesn't lead to the whatever recognition they're looking for. Instead of they took it from a more humble point of view, they would have a lot more success. And I have seen it happen where, where somebody who is just a go-getter and is willing to do whatever it takes, they just look better and they move through the organization and they make better relations because they're more open. They're more, they actually see the opportunities. They're not just looking for the, it's like a reverse way to look at the world almost opportunities versus the obstacle. Yeah. I know it's like that thing about the Chinese character that means obstacle and opportunity all in one, right? That it's, it's a paradigm shift to, to view it that way. And it's, again, it's anxiety reappraisal. It's, am I excited because I can meet the challenge or am I anxious because I can't, and I don't think that it's worth defeating or, or achieving. Um, the, and again, it comes down to fragile narcissism or, or even grandiose narcissism versus the, the willingness to grow and to accept challenges. Because if you fail, you have a ground. So the big thing that character does is it helps you to cushion failure and say, well, I'm growing toward this. I'm still worthwhile as a person in progress. The thing that faith does for people, uh, I mean, on many on many levels, faith does a lot. But one of the things is it says that be prepared for mistakes, but you're still worthy in substance, right? If you have no overarching narrative that says that you're worthy as is um, on a, a priori basis, then you better worry about every mistake because with any little mistake, it totally unseats your view of yourself and you could, because you're not, you're not an entity that's, that's solid, that's stable. You are whatever you are in that moment. Yeah. percent true. I think, People haven't acknowledged that, or at least young people today don't acknowledge that part, or they're not aware of how that is a positive of, of having a religion, of having, of having faith. Yeah. Um, and so they right. have a very like dim view of, and you're right. They, they have made themselves vulnerable. Like, um, because the world is actually some can sometimes be incredibly harsh, right? 
like and and things you could be putting the right effort forward and you could still fail and you could still not get the results because it's just bad timing you you know you were off by what you should be doing you whatever it is you're not guaranteed any results so unless you have some something overarching to tell you like no you're still worth something you're gonna have a rough time of it yeah I absolutely agree with you and people, whether they like it or not, are looking for that. It's whether you find it in a superhero movie or faith or, or whatever. I mean, I do not shove religion down clients throats. That's an understatement. You know, you just don't do that when you work in mental health, if you want to sustain a practice, I mean, just bottom line, full stop. People want to know the whys, though. Even if you take an evolutionary psychology view of reproduction and contribution to the human race, it, it, that's, a, that's a telos, a, a goal, an end point, something that matters. And you can do that. It's just you, people have to be curious about what, what it is they want. And the, so you've got these micro narratives of, of game and pickup artistry. And we're like, okay, so that's exciting for a while, but then what? Like what, and now you have kind of people coming along with narratives of, oh, well, here's how to raise a family like a real man or, or things like that, right? You see people are trying to add on. It's like putting the railroad tracks down as the train is coming. It's like, uh-oh, here's the next step. Here's the next thing. Uh-oh, uh-oh, we got to keep it up. <laughs> well, you reminded me of what this book um, that I mentioned before, A Man's Value to Society, that he talks about is, he says, if you don't have those ideals, then it's, then you're going to be filled with what you're talking about. Things that are not really worthy of being, could actually be things that are bad for you. Right? You, you probably, you could fill it with vices. You could fill it with things that are just not going to be good for you because you have to fit, pick something. So if you don't fill it with that ideal or that aspiration, you're leaving yourself open to some lower level ideals and aspirations that might yeah. not be good for you long-term. Absolutely. Nature, whether on a macro level as the, just the ecosystems of the world or on a micro level of the human body and mind, nature abhors a vacuum. So you better be proactive in what you focus on or your mind and your baser instincts and fears and insecurities will appoint something for you. <laughs> if you do not have a lawyer, one will be court appointed for you. It's like, if you do not have an interest or something you're directing your brain to, your brain will appoint it for you. It will. Your impulses, your, your autonomic nervous system, whatever, your habit, that's why, you know, cell phone addiction. Um, fun fact, you can, as a thought experiment, just recognize any time that we reach for our phones out of a sense of not wanting to make eye contact or not want to sit with awkward, awkward silence in a room waiting for, with people. Well, think about how people would have gotten through that before in history because the DMV has been around longer than cell phones. The, most of our kind of corporate and public systems have been around longer than cell phones. People might have mingled. You might have met a future spouse or a best friend that way by not having your head in your phone. And it's weird to think about this stuff. But that, it gets into another thing. So you have two big... And that, that's just off the top of my head, two big things that are contributing to societal degradation. And that is using social media to blunt anxiety, win around people, okay? And the, uh, the view that it doesn't matter if you talk to people. There's people, so when you give people a false sense of security on something, it, it can be very damaging because with, with Facebook and online social media, 
people feel like, oh, I can always reach that person, reach my friend or my family member on Facebook. So what does that do? They might not ever do it because there's, it's right there. Like, well, if I wanted to, it's right there. So it's like, if I wanted to, there's socialization opportunities. Great. And then you never go for it. It's, it, it you see, that's, that can be very paralyzing. And on the flip side, what you'll find is fascinating in a study on uh, learned helplessness. If there was a dull sound that people heard and they had the opportunity to turn off with a switch, even if they didn't turn it off, they, which a lot of them didn't, they felt better and performed better than a, a control group where they couldn't turn off the sound and they were worried about it because they had no control over it. If you have control over your pace of socializing, even if you don't socialize, you feel this false sense of security that you, would, that you wouldn't if you actually had to meet people and, and the moment mattered. Each moment mattered when you were around people because you didn't know if you'd see that person again. No, that's, that's pretty incredible. And it, it sort of aligns with, it's not surprising though. And I think we're going to see a lot of like a rebellion against all the technology and it already is happening, right? Like retreats where you don't have any technology, but I think there will be people that just don't have a smartphone or they have places where you just can't bring a smartphone because I've thought this in it and I've, I've, I've gotten physically like annoyed. Like I'll have certain times where I'm thinking I could be working on something and I'll either imagine there's a buzz on my phone or there will be. Mm-hmm. And I'm like this stupid thing. Like, why are you like, it's bothering me. Like as much as it's uh, it brings like this um, instant gratification, all this other stuff. There is parts of it that I think we're getting sort of tired of. And it could be really, it sounds like it's related to what you're talking about, which is, it's almost like, because I'm respect, I think actually what you're making me think is because I respect myself, I respect my own time. I feel like this thing disrespects my time because it's, sure. it gives me access, right? It makes me avail too available, more available than, than I would want to make myself. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, I want to be respectful of time. So one thing that you asked me that I want to get to is the, go ahead. What? Another 10 minutes. Yeah. Another 10 minutes. Okay. One thing you asked me was the impact of unresolved emotional issues on people's physical health. You're right. That's not talked about enough. Um, where we want to jump in on that. So, so for listeners, a place that you can jump in is the ACEs study. So what does that stand for? Well, adverse childhood experiences scale ACEs. The it's, it's a very, it's a validated um, measurement of early childhood trauma. And the more points people have on it, the worse their prognosis for future functioning. If, there's no intervention in terms of therapy, like someone caring about that, whatever. It's a, there's a very, it's, the good news is you look at that screener and it's not like a, a prognosis of, of some kind of disease where there's no intervention. It's like you catch it early, early treatment, right? You help the, per, the people um, and they, they can exercise that trauma. But what we know about trauma in the immune system is that traumatic experiences have a high correlation, again, that's not causation, but high correlation with autoimmune disorders. So stress level, and again, we can loop back into how you view stress too probably. Let's just say that trauma survivors 
unless they get therapy or unless they have someone, and I want to be very clear on what therapy in quotes means. When I talk about it, you don't have to go to a counselor. You can go to a religious authority. You can go to whoever, someone who has your best interests at heart and that has a sort of professional at all or, or religious credo, whatever. But some, if you work that trauma out and you look at it and you're like, okay, this isn't happening again. Here's some things I can do to avoid it. I'll never know exactly what's going to happen in life, but I can avoid X, Y, Z that, and I'm not a kid anymore. And I have the power to leave situations I don't like, especially if you help that person extricate their finances from like an abusive partner or whatever. But the, the impact of trauma can certainly affect physiological functioning. Um, that's, it's so, it's so important for people to take account of their stress, look at how that can be changed either in the environment, leaving the environment or changing your relationship to that environment and seeing, wait a minute, I'm going to leave work at work. Or if it's a very abusive work situation, um, getting out of it or going to a different department, whatever, but how people view stress, how aversive it is as anxiety versus excitement certainly plays a part in their physical health because you have that chronic cortisol level okay and when people have chronic cortisol and, and, and heart elevation it's, it's not good for the body we didn't evolve we weren't created whatever term you want to use to sustain a high acuity of stress and heart rate we were created to have bursts of that and then some downtime but the kind of stress people are in now where it's just a chronic spiking of that physiological response especially with trauma and abuse where you, you have no control over it. I think that contributes a lot to the, to the profusion of medical, chronic medical problems people have. So a lot of people will chalk it up to nutrition, and I think that's valid. But I think a missing component of it is the, that the physical nutrition and the mental nutrition both are lower. Yeah. The reason I, I tweeted this... Um you know, the impact of unresolved emotional issues was actually that book that I mentioned before, the um, letting go by David Hawkins. And, and that's actually what, and I don't know, he was, I think, I believe he was, he was a psychiatrist or yeah, he was some type of doctor, but he, what he suggests in the book is exactly that, which is what we, what we talked about before the difference between like a lot of people, maybe they had something occur to them mm -hmm. and they resigned themselves to the fact that that's what occurred but they haven't accepted it. And that, that, that whatever they're holding on to emotionally is actually what's, yeah, it's almost like a weight. It's a, it it is. actually look at that in a lot of ways, right? If you, if you lie a lot, like let's forget about even trauma. I think one thing I've noticed is I try to be very honest person. I think I do a decent job of it. I think that's why I'm able to, my, I, I feel lighter. I think it's why I feel younger because I keep, right, when you lie, you keep, like, baggage. You have to, like, continue lying. Yeah, it's a combo. It's like, a, it's like weights on your head of, like, oh, wait, I got to tell this story and that story and this yep. is what I got to make sure I do. And it's like you're weighting yourself down. So in the same way, this emotional thing that you're still holding on to is, is also, it's like sort of slowing down your system. Your, it is, it's, yes. You're, it could affect you're, you in a physical way. It's like on a computer when you've got a bunch of tabs open that's taking RAM, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, I can use right. computer metaphors. I'm not a programmer or developer, but I'm pretty, I'm pretty tech plugged in. And I think you kind of have to go the other way where it, you, 
as a person, if you indulge in, in social media use and get on there and start getting in, uh, infected with the views of people who seemingly, in quotes, have great lives, then you need to come around the, the, the other way, like f break on through the other side of actually becoming a content creator and saying, okay, so here I, I'm going to actually type or I'm going to follow, okay, first follow, maybe have a list on Twitter or only follow positive news outlets on Facebook that are gonna uplift you. So really be tech savvy. Don't half, foot it, half step it and just let the, the internet and, and media come into you. Determine the way you accept it. So that's a big thing I wanna leave listeners with is, you know, I have a lot of lists on Twitter of people that are inspirational speakers and people such as yourself that like to, to talk about men's health in particular and human health in general. And if you keep your attention on that kind of stuff, it really makes a difference. It's empowering too. So trauma is essentially the something stressful and negative happening objectively, but then feeling you have no control over it. So one thing that's going to blow listeners' minds is people who could run away from the Twin Towers when they were collapsing had a lower incidence by far of PTSD than people who were trapped or immobilized and had to see the towers falling if you feel you can escape a horrible, horrific event, your brain is very resilient. Resilience is in human nature. It's in the evolutionary fiber. It's in our genetic material. In our society now, though, when we feel subjected and immobilized, so being immobilized is the heart of trauma. Do what it takes to empower yourself because that's going to insulate you against so much trauma and anxiety. Prepare for a speech. Know that you have a few facts memorized if you're going to do public speaking. So you know what? Even if you feel nervous and, and stutter a little bit, you've got some things to throw out. It, there's so much we can do to empower ourselves that we underestimate. Think of, like you said, mobility, but it makes sense that even like exercising, like the yes. act of, of getting, like it's almost like you, you, you're doing something that's under your control. And you're, you're, and you're almost teaching your own mind the lesson, like, oh, I can, I can be stronger, I can be more resilient in a physical capacity, but then that also helps you in the, in the mental uh, way as well. It does. Mental mobility, too. It's like that's your ability to be creative and look at things like, how can I turn this to my advantage? Or how do I, it's, it's widening the chess board, looking at the whole board instead of maybe you're going to lose a pawn, maybe this is a battle that you lose widen it and see the entire playing field people aren't taught to do that now we look, get so caught up in little threads and discussions that miss the point yeah that's a huge thing to end on is just empower yourself be, be mobile be be well like the 48 laws of power it's like one of the i think the last law is become formless and what that means is become so good at maneuvering that you're essentially a, a vapor. You can fit in anything and you can operate with anything. Yeah. And that's true. Order, yeah. And I think, I think in order to be mobile to, to our earlier point, you got to like let go of those things that are holding you down. Yes. Physically, emotionally, you got to sort of free yourself, forgive yourself, accept what, what, and I know it's hard because I, I, you know, some certain circumstances that I've definitely never been through and wouldn't want to be, have gone through, but, I think, unfortunately, for people like you said that have been victims of things, they don't have a choice. They have to just deal with the circumstances they have and do their best with it. 
but that, yeah, uh, that's a big thing that I talk about where people, I just think people are way too harsh on themselves. And I think don't, don't be, don't be harsh on yourself, but be loving, but also have high standards for yourself and like push on those two, the, the opposites, those polar opposites. And I, I don't know, there's some good mojo there. It's possible. It's like grasping two um, levers and just pulling yourself up. It is possible. And sometimes maybe you hold on to one more than the other, but it's through practice that you'll get a, get a better, uh, you'll get a better grasp on both. Well, I've enjoyed this, man. I've enjoyed it too. We need to do another one where we go line by line on your unpopular tweet thread because of that book you released, which I want to, I want to speak out the book of uncomfortable truths. Yeah. And so I'm happy to do another one. Yeah. Um, so, uh, listeners can find you. Yeah. Around my Twitter. So yes. Twitter decides to ban, to ban me, I'll be done, basically. <laughs> oh, so it's no. at Future in Mind, two Ds. Yep. yep, at Future in Mind, Mind with two Ds. That's right. And from there, everyone, you can see Bill's book. There's a nice picture of it in his banner, The Book of Uncomfortable Truths. Um, he put on the men of... My audience find you. They can find me on Twitter, at Fox Therapy LLC. Yep. All right. Thank you so much, Bill. This was a fun joint podcast here. Really?